This is an episode of the Bedlam Book Club. I'm your host, Holly. Joining me as a co-host today is Maya. Hello. This is a non-profit, self-organized podcast exploring the history and culture of madness and the way that these forces influence our lived realities. This podcast is recorded on stolen land. Our aim is to foster awareness and solidarity through the existence of shared context. This episode contains detailed descriptions of institutionalization, medical procedures, forced treatment, torture, and other inhumane treatments. So please be advised, these, this episode and the next episode are going to be heavy hitters. Our opening question for today is, why are we the Bedlam Book Club? And I'm going to turn that question right around and ask you... Naming this podcast was a really long and arduous process. Like, we really, really agonized over the name. I've never done anything more difficult in my life, except for trying to plan Holly's birthday. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very, very belligerent when it comes to people planning my birthday. (laughs) Um, But so we landed on the Bedlam Book Club because we were inspired by people who were living in asylums who found community with each other for emotional support to stave off boredom because these people just genuinely liked each other and developed deep relationships. The idea of kind of informal social gatherings, asylum after dark, and we know that institutionalization is a really strong part of this history. And so trying to confront that, but also subvert it. Yeah, and so we came up with the name Bedlam Book Club. Bedlam being the nickname of an asylum that we'll talk about here in a little bit. And that became synonymous with madness itself. Yeah, so the concept of madness, the concept of the asylum, the concept of mad people having agency and working together to better their own lives and not just being subject to the whims of institutions. And I think we want to both honor the contributions of and the realities of people in these experiences and also approach the subject with the lightness that is ethical to bring to it. And so that's why we're the Bedlam Book Club because we are a bunch of mad people working together informally to produce content and to gather information related to our own interests. And to build relationships. And we're not the only Bedlam Book Club and we won't be the last. And assuredly. And with that, we'll get on to the topic for the day. So we are going to be talking about the asylum system, the birth of the asylums, from basically the Middle Ages, which start in about 500 CE, if you'll remember, all the way up to essentially the present day. So Holly, we talked about the asylums in our overview episodes, and we talked about them heavily. So they came up in our Medieval Madness episode, they came up in our Early Modern Madness episode. Several episodes focused pretty heavily on asylums. So why are we going back to do a deeper dive? One, they are the pivotal institutional response to madness. More than anything else, the state and capitalism responded to madness by creating institutions. So they're an important way of understanding how the state interacts with disability and madness. Also because so many mad people wound up over the course of history living and dying in these institutions. And so this is a way for us to tell their stories in more detail than just kind of glossing over everything that happened. Yeah, I want to echo that. I think it felt important to revisit this topic and give it its 
do weight given how large it loomed in people's experiences and also in our understanding of what the history of madness is. Like we said very early on, if people know anything about the history of madness, the asylums are likely to be something that they would cite. As we were referencing earlier, you know, the Bethlehem Hospital became known as Bedlam. And the word Bedlam now means something loud and cacophonous. It's so thoroughly pierced our cultural psyche that it's just omnipresent. Like it's you, there's, there's no getting rid of it. It has to be reckoned with. And I think it's also worth talking about how tracing the history of the asylum system in the West is a way of tracing this history as a whole. The emergence of the asylums, their expansion, and then ultimately disinvestment from them in favor of more modern quote-unquote treatments, that's a really important part of the history of madness in the West. So kind of giving our full lens to them felt like a really an important act. So, but before we get into the asylums themselves, we're going to talk about the lead up to the asylum. So this is taking place um, during the Middle Ages, the medieval era. And during this time, if you had a mad person, by whatever standards you're defining that, that person is being taken care of at home. That person's family members are responsible for keeping them out of trouble, for keeping them safe, keeping them fed and sheltered. And so as a result, as you can imagine, results may vary. If you have a very loving, understanding, disability justice-oriented family, you're going to be well taken care of, or at least better taken care of than someone that sees you as a burden. And potentially a family that has sufficient means to care for someone who's not directly contributing to the economic condition of the household, which isn't to imply lack of empathy on anyone's part, but for people who are kind of struggling to feed and resource everyone under their roof, we could imagine that this kind of home care could become more challenging. Yeah, put a pin in that because it's going to come up again. Okay. So in Christian Europe, it's a lot of home care and there's a lot of struggle around that, kind of like we were alluding to. But in the Muslim world, they had proto-hospitals and asylums that were being constructed and operated around 1100 CE preceding European hospitals and institutions by about 300 to 400 years. That's a lot of generations of humans. Yeah, it's quite the difference. Um, and these were even funded by solely by charity, so they weren't even state institutions. In the asylums in Baghdad and Egypt played music for their patients and made sure that the walls were lined with flowers. So they tried to attend to creature comforts of the mad The actual treatments that were taking place in these locations, um, I haven't found any sources that could attest to that. Patients also received a sum of money upon being discharged, and they were not held indefinitely. During the summer months, patients were chained up. At least in some places. At least in some places. It was thought that the heat would make their symptoms worse. Given the, the locations where they're at, like, you know, like Baghdad in Egypt, like, get pretty hot in the summer... And so, you know, that's going to make anything worse. I don't think that's enough to justify chaining people up, but I can see how summer months would just kind of put everybody on edge. And we know in places like Fez, Morocco, they did use beatings 
to as in in lieu of symptom management european hospitals once they did appear which again was like 300 to 400 years later were much more focused on religious conversion than they were about like actual treatment and from there once we get these hospitals established in the middle ages we're off to the races where we're going to be starting to see asylums pop up um, and um, hospitals become more sophisticated it's worth noting that the famous Michel Foucault asserted in, in his book, Madness and Civilization, that there was a great confinement wherein the European powers in the mid-1600s to 1700s sought to kind of like secure their political holdings. Equipped with rationale and reason, the elites sought to imprison and silence the mad, which were considered by Foucault to be an intellectual threat to the elite. And this was done by tossing the mad into asylums, which were repurposed from the shells of empty leper hospitals. This is a compelling narrative, but it's not true, mostly. <laughs> Vivid imagery, limited historical substantiation. Yeah, madness has always been a political thing, but it is not of pure political construction as kind of Foucault kind of suggests in his book, which has been very influential. And in every book that I've read about the history of madness has taken time to address why Foucault is wrong. And so I am and taking... here we are. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> taking a little bit of time to explain why Foucault was wrong. So here's what did happen, to the best of our knowledge. During the Enlightenment, there was a focus on jailing and institutionalizing the mad, yes. But it was more along the lines of going after lawbreakers. There was this criminality that was associated with the mad. It wasn't that the mad were like an intellectual challenge to the elite. It's that they just saw the mad as criminals. And what do you do with criminals in this system, this very punitive system? You jail them. And in a bit of a leap, you associate criminality with a kind of inherent madness. Not an obvious connection. But it's it's certainly a way of <clears throat> distancing yourself from people that you consider problematic elements in society and containing them and containing their behavior, possibly even circumventing legal processes to do so. Although, again, that's a bit of a leap on my part. Yeah, so we'll get into that a little bit as to exactly what it took to get somebody into an asylum, and it, it varies across the years. So in the meantime, the emphasis in the Enlightenment is more on this idea of criminality and the association between criminality and madness. Yes. So this is by no means ethical. Um, this is not harm reduction, but it's still a far cry from the scene described by Foucault. So the mad are not, in this case, a political prisoner swept up in mass in a grand conspiracy. The elite are just ableist assholes. Like, they're just being jerks. <laughs> just, that's too light of a word, but, like, mm -hmm. you know, here we are. Well, I think Foucault, an intellectual, is seeing madness and wrangling over power as this great intellectual conflict. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to speak for Foucault, but I imagine that that probably would be a really tempting... I mean, you don't even speak French. 
I don't even speak French. <laughs> so, like, I imagine that that intellectual aspect is really interesting to him, but we'll get into the numbers of how many people are actually institutionalized at this point, and I think everyone's going to be surprised. So more recent scholarship has cast further doubts on Foucault's historical claims. Roy Porter, friend of the pod, I can't say that. Um, <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> Roy Porter went as far as to say that, quote, there was no coordinated drive by governments, central or local, to sequester the mad poor, end quote. Ironically, the mad were treated more humanely during the time of the Enlightenment than almost any other time in Christian Europe. Which really does the most to demolish these claims of anything that I've heard so far. Yeah, like, if you wanted to be mad in Christian Europe, like, this is one of the best times to have been mad. And that is a demoralizing statement. In the 1800s Britain, it was mostly ordinary people who got swept up into asylums, but not always. If you had money... You could spring for a private room with better food and amenities. Here, most small asylums were run for profit. During this time period, the amount of people experiencing forced treatment at asylums was relatively small. During the Middle Ages in Europe and elsewhere, there did used to be mass epidemics of leprosy. The facilities uh, where they housed the lepers eventually evolved into the modern hospital and the modern asylum. Before then, again, it's all family care. As resources became available, the mad would be placed in hospitals, shrines, or even neighboring homes as resources back with the original family became exhausted. Those who were considered violently mad were chained up in their cells. It was also around this time that physicians specializing in caring for the mad began to surface, often looking for privately owned institutions. Workhouses were another solution to mad people who were left unclaimed. They would labor alongside women with venereal diseases. And also relevant while we're on the subject of gender, sex workers were often sent to asylums as well. So when we're thinking about how these categories are constructed, it's helpful to think about what lenses were being used by the people in a position to other those who had conditions or circumstances that were deemed different, undesirable. Yeah, we see the real association, like, because again, in the Enlightenment, there's the association with criminality, and then as we move up, there's the association of, as they would have put it, women of ill repute. So this is a long time kind of co-creation and kind of casting madness among kind of categories of people that are being systematically othered and marginalized yes and so this is going to get extra interesting in a second here because not only are the mad being associated with sex workers and women with venereal diseases they were also compared to children as being the weakest members of society as one thinker at the time said in a medical journal that the mad are like children, but at least children inspire hope, whereas the insane inspire horror. This is the environment in which early asylums were established and proliferated. And I think, again, to go back to this pretty horrifying construction, I think it's worth talking about the ways that in medieval Europe, there was a very strong hierarchization and categorization of people and of households that was religiously reinforced 
with men at the top of this hierarchical status, women decidedly beneath that man and children underneath them both. And that was echoed in the political systems with king down to peasantry. Yeah, folks might remember from our episode where we covered the Enlightenment, where not only was there this patriarchal structure, but there was also this idea that the rational man is the one that should be a charge. And if you're a man who's lost your rationality, you don't get the privileges of patriarchy. Right, so you've been essentially excluded out of the privilege associated with your superior status. And you are then associated with lesser beings, Mm -hmm. women and children. Bethlehem Hospital is a great one to go into a lot of detail about um, because it's very reflective of the trajectory of other asylums at this time. And it's very old. It's very old. It's as old as 1377. It was originally founded as a general hospital, but quickly became an asylum for the mad. So this is the, the Middle Ages. And in 1547, on the cusp of the Middle Ages, they made it official. They turned it into a mental hospital and transferred ownership to the city of London, making it a public institution. In the early 1400s, Bethlehem had only six patients. Hmm. And, you know, still, even though London was smaller at the time, we assume that's a Obviously a very tiny fraction. <laughs> yeah, most people, I think most people's gut instinct is that it was more. So 1400s is six people. By 1500s, it had grown to 20. That's, that's not a lot of growth in a century. And it's very low numbers considering what's about to happen in a few centuries. And we will get into that, especially in the next episode. In 1677, the hospital was relocated and rebuilt into this kind of large almost palace-like structure after it was damaged in a fire. It was very fancy on the outside, but observers noted that it had a kind of ugly interior or it had this corrupted interior because of who they were housing inside of it. And for those who are interested in kind of aesthetics and spatial history, I think that that's something that I've seen consistently, that there's this prevailing trope that continues over centuries where asylums are located in these grand palatial settings with gardens and elegant facades and it's not a reflection of what's happening within and so if you think about who is that exterior for it's for the community reassuring itself and it doesn't benefit the people who are inside especially if those people are being confined and controlled those beautiful grounds may not be available to the people who are within and so this kind of deviation and that like spatial relationship I think is really interesting in this context. By the late 1600s there were a hundred patients that were housed there so again all things considered not very many people. Up until this point Bethlehem had been the only mental hospital in England but in the mid-1600s mental hospitals began to proliferate. It was also at this time that the hospital became known as Bedlam a word now synonymous with being loud and hectic. Bedlam became a national symbol of madness. It was open to visitors who would pay a fee to tour the facility and see the mad for themselves. But there was not uniform opinion about the mad at this time, and there never has been. 
there was a debate as to just how the alleged mad were. One observer was noted saying that, quote, The world is but a great bedlam, and those who are more mad lock up those who are less. End quote. Another observer pointed out that husbands who disliked their wives would send them to the asylum even if they were, quote, perfectly healthy. The wives would be mistreated there and return home quite mad. Lawsuits of the wealthy often contested the detention of so-called mad family members, so people were working to keep their family members out of the asylum, especially through court of law, which is really interesting. Former patients of Bedlam were vocal about their experiences, especially a man named Urbane Metcalf, who wrote about his experiences. He described Bedlam as an abusive, morally corrupt institution. He accused staff of taking bribes, of villainy, and being short in, quote, common virtue. This was reflective of asylum conditions across Europe. So even as asylums are rising and the numbers of patients confined within them are rising, we're seeing a kind of contested landscape. So people are writing about their own experiences and publicizing them. People are critiquing the authority of asylums and questioning the le- their legitimacy. So we're not seeing a kind of uniform embrace. No, we're not. Bedlam did not chain its patients on dirt floors but their contemporaries sometimes did. However, nearly all asylums at the time practiced bloodletting, forced medication, straitjackets, and general abuse. It should be noted that when I say forced medication, um, forced medication did occur, but they didn't have psychotropic medications yet. And it wasn't the pharmacological revolution yet. So these are just kind of existing medications that they're throwing at the wall and seeing what sticks. If a patient was not better within a year, they were discharged as uncured. As we enter the mid-1700s and 1800s, in the U.S. and elsewhere, physicians made use of so-called spinning chairs, drownings, ice treatments, and literal terror as ways to treat patients. I want to go back a little bit and highlight something that you said earlier, which was that in response to Michel Foucault's arguments about the Great Confinement, that in fact the Enlightenment wasn't a terrible time to be mad in Europe. Kind of in light with, of what we're learning here, can you speak a little bit more to that? So it mostly has to do with the level of state intervention that's happening and how madness was defined. Because madness at this point is kind of defined as like irrationality as well as what some people might call abnormal behaviors. I want to be careful with my language around that. Non-normative behaviors and experiences but what we're gonna see is that the the asylum boom winds up happening because doctors define madness so broadly that anybody could be mad and anybody could be admitted whereas right now that's not the case Mm. the state and the community will not intervene on you because madness is defined much more narrowly So you're at this kind of eye of the storm in between medieval constructions and like primarily religious constructions of madness and the medical constructions that happen later. So it's not because the existence of treatments were good. 
It's not because your options were good. It was simply that you had the possibility of being left alone. And even when you, you were in an institution, like, conditions weren't necessarily good. But it's in the 1800s that they start putting people in chairs that spin them around so fast that you know, it shocks the system or, you know, getting people to the point where they're almost dead from drowning and then resuscitating them as a way to shock the system. That's not happening during the Enlightenment. <laughs> they hadn't gotten their game together yet for the truly hideous abuses that were meant to be curative. Right. So, you know, we, ha we hadn't reached these things yet. And it's, I'm sorry, but it's just going downhill from here. In England in the early 1800s, a report on the condition of asylums led to a series of reforms, such as private asylums needing to be licensed, because before this, anybody could have opened up an asylum. Known as a free-for-all. Yes, absolutely. One law allocated funds to mental health care, but did not require that those funds be spent. That sounds awfully modern. Most local governments claimed that there were no lunatics within their borders and withheld the funding. Another law required that asylums needed to be staffed by medical professionals and not just whoever. Around this time, we see the, quote, trade in madness, which was individuals starting asylums and making a profit from it. And you can imagine that you could make quite a profit when you don't have to hire medical professionals and you don't even need a license to start up. There's no oversight. You're just housing people, arguably captives, within your building and then treating them in a way that makes sense to you. So that's the trade in madness. We also see the rise of work camps, which were a kind of scared straight program for the mad. The conditions at these camps were so bad that it was the hope that the mad would seek employment elsewhere and participate in broader society after being subject to these camps. It's a, just a question of motivation, really. Yeah, that's, I'm sure we've, we've all run into that. <laughs> <laughs> In 1826, only 5,000 individuals were housed in asylums, and that number does not count workhouses. So the number of kind of indentured, detained, mad people was higher than 5,000. That said, it required a physician's note to deem that somebody was mad enough to go into an asylum. Not a priest? not a politician or even a family member, but a physician. This is the first time in history that doctors have a monopoly over who is considered mad and who is not. And to go back a step, these reform laws that required more participation of medical professionals and the need for consensus of physicians in confinement, again, may have been intended as reforms. But when we look at what's to come and the abuses perpetrated on mad people confined in asylums, medicine is extremely implicated in that. So I think there's a, there's a tension being held here where, as we see over and over again, intended reforms give way to abusive treatment. To that point, in 1845, English Parliament required each local province to build an asylum and that each of these asylums needed to have a medical officer. 
Around this time, private asylums began to decline while state-funded institutions received more and more tax funding. By the end of the 1800s, England and many other nations were well into their age of asylum. For contrast, there was a Quaker-run institution called The Retreat, and after the mysterious death of a Quaker woman in an asylum, its founder sought to create an alternative to the abuse and death within the current system. So they founded the retreat, which was only open to other Quakers. It was conceived as a non-medical religious alternative to the local York Hospital. This institution became known for its philosophy of moral treatment. They placed a focus on fostering self-control and helping patients adapt to the struggles of daily life. Patients were generally treated with kindness, though beatings were used for air quotes, difficult patients. So not a utopia. Not a utopia. There's still some problems here. Canical restraints were used far less often than at other hospitals, um, but were still employed for, again, air quotes, difficult patients, however we're defining that. Patients could, aside from the occasional restraint, be subject to hot baths, nutritious meals, time and supplies to write and paint and read, with a 1 to 10 nurse-patient ratio, and time for games. The goal was to have patients experience upper-class life in the hopes that they would it would help them adjust to daily life in the real world. Survivors of this ordeal often commented that they were grateful for how they were treated, though outcomes for treating madness were not different than at other institutions. So they were made comfortable, but it didn't cure madness. And it was still compulsory. But I also think it's it's an important alternative model to hold up, that people were reacting to the things that they observed, the things that they knew that people were going through and tried to forge other paths, and the ways that the treatment of madness has always sought cures, I think still comes through in this setting. That they're still holding out hope that this will lead to a quote-unquote cure yeah and at the very least like and we've we've talked about this a little bit in like previous episodes where it's like nobody's trying to make the mad comfortable yeah and in this case aside from the restraints and the beatings you know there's there's a format here for how to potentially do that and i think that there's an interesting class conversation that we can have where the retreat is trying to give an upper class experience to people who wouldn't have that otherwise and are basically kind of inferring that lower class existence promotes madness. Right. It, it presupposes the difference in experience or the difference in rationality on a class divide. So the implication is that if I offer you an upper class lifestyle, then it will make you sane mm-hmm. because being wealthy is being sane and being poor is being insane. Yeah, or at least to be wealthy gives you the only chance to kind of get yourself together. So I don't know. It's it's complicated. It's complicated. It's very interesting. And again, to see a an approach that prioritizes at, at least at a baseline an experience of comfort when that's so rare in history, I think it's still worth noting despite its obvious exceptions Mm. 
This moral treatment didn't take off in much of Europe, as the religious focus of the Quakers clashed with the new medical ideas around drugs and advances in science. Moral treatment did take off in Paris with the likes of Philippe Pinel, who we've talked about before, and in Florence as well. As a quick aside and correction, uh, Pinel did not literally throw off the chains of the patients at his asylum. We accidentally shared propaganda as fact. Let that be a lesson to all of us. So, sorry, <laughs> we're issuing a correction right here. Um, that was a story that was made up decades after the French Revolution, and so it's, it's, um, it's wrong. What really happened? What really happened? Much less than arresting. Oh. Like, he... Pinnell still applied concepts of moral treatment, but it's not like he just went through ripping chains off of people in a frantic hurry. Administrators never do anything themselves. <laughs> <laughs> These moral reforms helped spur on the expansion of the asylum system and increase the rate of patient admittance due to increased optimism about prognosis. Which is a point that we make repeatedly, but I still think it's important that optimism about the possibility of treatment and the hopefulness of prognosis encourages the building of asylums. Because asylums themselves, if they can be sites of healing... you got to get everybody in. Yeah. That's, that's the only logical conclusion if asylums work. Right, but those the conditions in which asylums work were meant to be reforms against abuses taking place in asylums. So mm -hmm. it's a fascinating swing. Meanwhile, in the United States, the U.S. had its first asylum, the Pennsylvania Hospital, which was founded in 1752, in part due to fears over the violent insane, and was advocated for by Benjamin Franklin. He really got around. There was a high association with criminality and madness, which we've already seen. And like Bedlam, they offer tours of the mad for a price to the public. Practitioners saw themselves as animal tamers. Oh, Jesus. They also had a wide variety of techniques for subduing patients, including beatings, chemical irritants, starvation, opium, and inducing intense nausea. The USA was not without its reforms, namely under the influence of Dorothea Dix, who could easily have her own episode, uh, which, as in other places, resulted in an influx of new asylums alongside new reforms. So she pulls a Pinnell. We've already talked about the racialization of madness in more detail in past episodes, but in the USA, everything comes back to race. At this time, black people in the USA um, are enslaved and subject to conceptions of madness. An enslaved person attempting to flee to freedom was considered insane, as was an enslaved person refusing to do work. There were no asylums for slaves, but there were doctors who enforced racial stereotypes and concepts of madness that benefited the supposed owner of the enslaved person. For free black people, there were asylums, though doctors working at these institutions were often under the impression that, air quotes again, savage peoples, in this case usually black and indigenous people, were subject to madness upon being given political freedom. Likewise, immigrants who wound up disabled or jobless often wound up in state institutions. Conditions in these hospitals were abhorrent. 
The chronically ill often remained untreated, and half the hospital beds were filled with the mentally ill. In a sense, the situation was very akin to that in Europe. Throughout the USA, the mad that were not institutionalized were auctioned off alongside of animals to the lowest bidder for forced labor. This practice would continue in some places until the 1900s. They were seen as having strong backs and weak minds. Maya's making a face. You can't see the face. (laughs) (laughs) I've not heard this before. Yeah, it's pretty wretched. Germany is a weird special case in that I would say they actually tried. The German government collectively decided that they didn't want to just house the mad and create a bunch of custodial positions. Like, they don't want to just warehouse the mad. Instead, they wanted to set up modern institutions and create a science-based approach that was actually going to help people. The problem is is that the science-based approach failed to find a cause of madness and a solution to madness, and so optimism gave way to despair and demoralization. So they wound up in the same place. Yeah, they wound up in the same place as everyone else after giving it the good old college try to try and figure out what was going on which like again like i've got a science background like this really this story pulls at my heartstrings because there's nothing more frustrating than having a lot on the line try to find an answer and just find the absence of one and there's a lot of reasons why that could be like i i think it's worth noting that like there is no one answer to understanding madness because madness is multifaceted madness is partially political partially biological partially psychic there's a lot of things going on and everyone's case is different and so you can't you know just create a linear regression and have that answer solved for you like you can't do it because that's not the problem that you're solving for and i think one of the things that we learn from this history and that we learn from disability justice is that an idea of a normative human condition is in itself a subversion and a deviation from the truth. Like, we know that that is not reality. So if you're approaching this work with a desire to move people towards a normative outcome, which I imagine is what they were doing, that's not going to work. Yeah, their their lens was wrong. Mm-hmm. What happened next is both tragic and predictable. Germany then erected places to warehouse the mad in mass alongside with people with chronic conditions. They even sorted people based on whether or not they thought they could be cured. In the later 1800s, Germany once again tried the scientific approach. They developed huge institutions for elite scholarship. The treatment that this produced was condescending and patriarchal. Asylums were essentially turned into teaching hospitals. Medical professionals pathologized madness very heavily, applying their framework to every observable person in the country. Such began the first serious data gathering and scientific study of the mad, leading to the foundation of modern-day psychiatry. As a reminder, psychiatry came from the asylum, not the other way around. Back in the U.S. during Reconstruction following the Civil War, black people were no longer enslaved but still subject to segregation. This included asylums. Most of the doctors were white and social Darwinism was at play. Slavery, though recently abolished, was still seen as better for slaves 
which certainly came into play in the dynamics between doctors and patients. That and the fact that asylum occupants who were black often had to do forced labor, because it was thought uh, to be good for them. By the early 1900s, they had to rapidly open up more asylums to house more black patients. Black patients could also expect to face higher rates of disease during their stay, higher rates of permanent institutionalization, and worse food than their white counterparts. This also became a refuge for disabled black people whose families didn't want them. So it's just really stark. We see the racism of the U.S. playing out in these institutions as we do today. Yeah, very, very blatantly and very pro-slavery bent, even in a uh, time where, where slavery is abolished. And some of this, I also need to point out, is happening in the North. Yeah, we see these white supremacist fantasy being applied to places that are ostensibly meant to be curative or supportive in some way. This like ongoing attachment to the institution of slavery on the part of white people in positions of power leading to the way that these institutions are structured for black people who are confined within them. And with that, Maya, what are you still processing? I think that I'm processing the growth in the asylum system and how we got from medieval Europe and the origins of asylums and hospitals to the rapid expansion that we saw over the course of those following centuries. It wasn't an immediate process. It wasn't an overnight change. And there's ebbs and currents within that. But by the late 1800s and early 1900s, there's a very rapid increase in institutionalization and asylums. And that's a lot more recent history and a lot more confined in time than I think at least the common conception of the asylum system and in some ways even the narrative that I'm holding, even with the context that we're trying to bring. Yeah, because we haven't even gotten to the real big asylum boom yet. That'll right. be next episode. Right. So that is such an expansion and involves so many human beings and so much complexity that it warrants its own episode. So we're kind of looking into, we're peering into kind of the growth of where the system came from. And I'm, I'm interested in this transition between home care and institutional care and in the origins of asylums and what the complex set of motivations must have been. I can imagine there being a mix of like both people who are eager to stop having responsibility for caring for relatives and also the desire to see people have more of a possibility of a cure, a different outcome. To that end, like, I'm curious about this secret third option, which, like, more and more recently we've seen this call for peer support as, as a response to kind of mental health crises. And I'm curious as to what that looked like back in the day, because certainly that didn't make it in the, into the historical record. Right. I mean, to go back to our early conversation about Bedlam Book Club, mm -hmm. I mean, in some ways we're imagining circumstances that I'm sure existed because people find each other, they find ways to support each other, they find ways to survive in really adverse conditions. And one of the 
tyrannies of history as it's often practiced is the loss of what's not dominant and the loss of what's not formally recorded. And so we do have people's accounts, which is always precious, but there's so much granularity and nuance and day-to-day and hopes and aspirations and experiences and variances that are lost. And I think that's worth processing. What is your takeaway? I think my takeaway to kind of extend on something that's connected to what I'm processing is that so many different motivations and value systems are implicated in the asylums. Both desires for positive outcomes and optimism and despair and pessimism are implicated in asylums. And I think it's also, like a lot of institutional systems, really important to recognize that asylum systems were not inevitable. They don't represent care for the mad for the vast majority of our history. It's a small slice in time and they were fueled by resourcing that came with capitalism and state power. Um, And so while we may not subscribe to Foucault's view of it as a elite power grab and a sidelining of intellectual rivals, it's still a function of a particular set of social conditions. Yeah. I've been thinking throughout this episode as I've been writing it and as we've been talking about it, wondering if like disability justice had it existed in a format that we recognize today, what kind of harm that might have mitigated if we could have really convinced people that that was the way to go. Can you say more about that? Well, like, okay, so like take Germany, mm-hmm. for example. Based on what I've read, they didn't have an, they didn't have a, an equivalent to disability justice. They had, we're going to cure people and we're going to make them like us. And we're going to use science to do it. But disability justice doesn't look at things that way. And, you know, again, I think talking about curing madness is really tricky because in some cases there is nothing to cure, but there are things instead to accommodate. And nowhere in this process have I seen accommodation at a structural level, not even in the retreat. And so that's the systematic response that I want to see, but so far as I have read, was not present. Yeah, and no, I really appreciate that. And I, I think that one of the takeaways to me, too, is that something we all know, but I think is still painful to talk about, is how expendable groups of people can be considered in hierarchical stru- social structures. The existence of a hierarchy implies a bottom, mm-hmm. and that bottom often includes the mad, it includes people who are visibly non-conforming to the social standard that that culture adopts. And I think that when you pile on that kind of punishing assessment of difference and you marginalize people and you dehumanize them, what does that open the door to? And I think that the history of the asylum system is a very clear indictment of what happens when you dehumanize people in your society. And when those elements intersect, you know, to use an intersectionality paradigm, things get worse and more dire and more brutal. 
So people who are considered mad and who are formerly enslaved are subject to a comparatively worse treatment inside a extremely inhumane and punishing system. And I think that's it's really important to attend to this because not only is it our history, but it's also, I think, a marker of what it means to be together as a society, what it means to be together as people. How do you exclude? How do you order and categorize humans? What does that accomplish in your social structure? And what does that then open the door to? And what kinds of treatments of other people are you willing to countenance? This has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it uh, to the degree that that's possible. Um, Enjoying it to the degree that it's possible since earlier this year. (laughs) That's the Bedlam Book Club. (laughs) (laughs) So I think this is a good place to cut it off because, again, we've got a whole other episode talking about the asylums. And my guarantee to you is it is going to get worse. (laughs) Yeah, your modernity will not save you. Yeah, modernity will not save us. Do you have a book recommendation for the book club? Yes, I do. Um, A little outside the time frame that we talked about today, but From Asylum to Prism by Anne E. Parsons. This is a really important book to understanding our modern context with what happened when we lost the asylum and what they were replaced with. And spoiler alert, it was the prisons. It's a really important book to us as we kind of piece together this context. If you want more resources uh, related to the time period that we talked about, um, you can check our bibliography and some of our general history overview has got some really good information. Madness of History, um, I in particular recommend very highly. Also, we have an Instagram now. Yeah, we do. Um, So you can come and find us on Instagram and follow us. I'm sorry we don't have anything else. We follow some really cool people um, that we're going to have on the show. We're so excited. Yeah, we're going to have some interviews coming up as well. So exciting things are happening. You can find us at Bedlam Book Club, where Holly is the shit poster in chief. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of memes. A lot of memes and shit posting. So... All right, in the interest of not making this episode um, too long, um, I'm Holly. I'm Maya. And this has been the Bedlam Book Club. This has been an episode of the Bedlam Book Club. This show was produced, written, and created by Maya and Holly. Intro and outro music was by Coma Studio. Check out our bibliography in the show notes. Make sure to practice self-care and contact local resources if you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health emergency. Take care of each other out there.